song needed told me written in the eighth century. So uh, throughout the years, people have been singing a song such as that, I think, and uh, one that has a lot of good words to it. Quite a day, wasn't it? Great to be able to <clears throat> witness the baptism of uh, those two ladies. And uh, <clears throat> also, that was uh, quite a meal we had. I was looking for finger foods. I want somebody to find finger foods for me someday, okay? Uh, that way I'll know what to prepare for. I'm glad I didn't eat before I went because when I hear finger food, I think they're going to give me something the size of a finger, and uh, that's going to be about it. But that was not the case, was it? And I appreciate all those who had a part in that. Great opportunity to be able to <clears throat> see their public witness uh, today. Don't forget to pray for um, Pastor Donald and Holly as they are leaving early in the morning, 6 o'clock, 5.30, 4.30, 3.30, something like that. It's getting there, there all the time. Uh, they're going to take the seniors and the juniors, right, both going together down to the uh, senior trip at the Wilds. And so they'll be gone, I think coming back on Friday, does that sound right? Friday evening. So um, pray for God to work in their hearts. And uh, it's a great opportunity for them to be away from a lot of influences and things that are around and to be under the sound of the gospel and God's word and trusting to make some life-changing decisions before they make that great advancement from the halls of education to the halls they're planning on going to next, whether that's continued education or whatever it may be that God will work there. And we take the juniors and seniors because of the size of the class. <clears throat> and so uh, let's continue to remember to pray for them <clears throat> both as they, those, uh, I think there's six of them, seven of them, something like that, that are going uh, down there and they're going to be leaving in the morning. You know, life is very, very, and I heard somebody say this one time, daily. And isn't that profound? Life is just so daily. I don't know about you, but um, I sort of enjoy a routine. Don't ask my wife about this. She can tell you all about it. Kind of like a pattern to my life. I sort of like things to happen at a certain time. Today, my nap was about a half an hour off because of the baptism. So if I fall asleep halfway through, I don't know who will take over. But, uh, you know, I just sort of got my routine out. Not a bad thing, don't get me wrong. But I think we're all sort of sort of used to just having a routine to our life. And I don't know if uh, a lot of people even think about it, but I, I would say almost everybody has a routine. They just sort of fall into a pattern <clears throat> that really don't think about it. It's just something that happens into your, daily, into your daily life. And that really is the topic tonight that we wanted to think about with this man Abraham is just sort of his daily life. Whenever we think about him, we think about the, the high points. We think about the great mountaintop experiences. That's going to be next week in Genesis 22. We think about those times whenever he is excelling and uh, moving closer to God. Or we think about those times whenever <coughs> he's not doing so well and he's messing up. Boy, we have both in the life of Abraham, don't we? Times of extremely problems, but then also times of of highness, but you know, those are the ones we hear about. Most of the time, Abraham got out in his tent, he probably ate whatever they ate, probably goat's milk. Uh, Chris is telling me that they have goat's milk down there. I, I, 
I'm, I'm not into that myself. Uh, I went ahead and just drunk the regular stuff. But, uh, you know, probably had their goat's milk, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> then they would have whatever they would have at those meals in that tent together. And um, then they would move the tent a little bit, find a place to pasture their flocks, and go on, and that would be their, basically their routine. It would be just sort of a daily activity that they would fall into. And think about that. The ordinary, uneventful days of a believer's life are usually the best test of true character, much more so than emergencies or crises. During emergencies and crisis times, we have a tendency to be very, very focused upon our Savior, you know, in prayer. <clears throat> Whenever something comes into our life that is beyond our ability to, to comprehend or maybe to handle, and I don't think this is unique to me, I'm sure it would be for all of us, it's not hard to find yourself begging before the throne of God and asking Him for advice or wisdom, I guess it would be a better word, because of that emergency that has somehow fallen into your life. But just those ordinary days, just those everyday things where everything just sort of flows like it's supposed to flow. You ever have one of those days? Maybe one or two. It just, you know, kind of moves the way it's supposed to move. Nothing exceptional or extraordinary happens. That's really what your true character is made of. Because all of us can gin up or conjure up strength and vitality for those times of excesses. But it's during those times of just living our daily lives that we have to show ourselves to be people of character and allowing God to work in our hearts. It's possible to face great courage, to face great occasions with wisdom. It's possible to have great courage when it comes to some event that's going on in our lives. And then to turn around and fail in some simple, average, ordinary, everyday, daily experiences that just sort of creep up on us daily. And we have to live ourselves, or we live through those things. So tonight, let's see how Abraham handled one of these ordinary daily events. Now, there's going to be some individuals that are in his life also that involve themselves in his life. But this would be sort of a daily activity for him as he would move through the events of his life. Seven things for you tonight. And then I got three concluding statements that I want to make. So let's uh, look at these seven things. No subpoints, but just sort of get the flow of this passage because of the length of these passages. It's going to be difficult to make a whole lot of subpoints. The first thing I want you to notice is this striking example that comes out of verse 22. And it is truly a striking example. Came to pass at that time. Now, that always causes me to pause and think about some things. At that time. I cannot allow my mind to just move across that and say to myself, what's he talking about at that time? Well, it seemed to be something going on in his life. We were just finishing up here with uh, Isaac and this whole, institute, this whole situation with Hagar, sending Ishmael off. He was 15 years of age, remember that? And he was mocking, according to, I think it was Galatians told us that, he was mocking the son of the promise. And so Abraham sent him off, and it says, at that time, and I'm not sure he's tying it into that so much as he is simply saying, a time in his life 
events going on in his heart and his life that were happening there, that this man, Abimelech, now that word and, and Felkal are both probably not personal or uh, they're more of a title. Abimelech would probably be the name of the king of the country, and he may have used this as a name general for Phicol. We don't know exactly for sure because that name Abimelech does appear a number of times here in the Old Testament. And it could have been the same guy, same individual we saw back in chapter 20. And I remember that was the man who reprimanded Abraham because he lied about his wife being his sister. And so that's the individual we're talking about here. The chief of hosts spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. The king and the commander, they come to Abraham on a special errand, and they use some striking words. Isn't this an amazing statement to come up? And, and you say, well, it's just sort of a, a Near Eastern greeting. I don't think so. I don't think God would have put it in this book for us if it was just sort of a... Uh, <coughs> an off-the-cuff remark that would have been sort of a, uh, you know, a delicacy of the day. He says, the Lord is with thee, and that's the last part. <coughs> Excuse me. Cold water must have got to me today. The Lord is with thee in all that thou doest. Isn't that a great testimony? Isn't it great to be able to say that God is with you in everything you do? I trust we can say that. I trust there's not some parts of our lives that we sort of Declare off limits to God. These two, and I would call them pagans because they are not part of the Jewish nation, have observed Abraham. And they've watched his life and they said, you know, God has really used you. He has really blessed you. Well, that should be true for all of us tonight. Whenever we, people look at our lives and they see how we react to the different events that occur in our daily activities, they should say, you know, God is directing your life. I think that's probably the highest compliment you could pay, could pay to a person. It would be to me, I know that. That you are following the dictates of God's will on a constant, daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis. And Abraham, he has some problems, right? And yet, this seems to be the general tenor of his life. Not that the man's perfect, of course, <clears throat> But the general tenor of his life is that he follows what God tells him to do. Oh, that would be true of us. That would be true for Wayside Chapel. It would be true for our families, right? It would be true for our nation, that we were following what God would have us to do on a daily basis, moment by moment, no matter what was going on. Both of these men say this. I mean, uh, I'm sure they're in agreement because you have two gentlemen, Abimelech and Phicol, doing this. So... It must have been sort of a common understanding between these two individuals. And when you observe this back from chapter 20 of their daily life, he was a genuine witness for God. Abraham was one who shared much about what God was and who God was, was all about. And so here is a pagan heathen king. He's able to draw this conclusion about the genuineness and the reality of the life of Abraham and how God is using him. So it's a striking testimony. It's amazing whenever the unsaved, let's put it in our vernacular today, the unsaved, those who are on the outside of God's family, use such a greeting as this, that God is with us in all that we do. That should kind of be a prayer for us, shouldn't it? That we constantly evaluate 
the days of our lives by that very important understanding. Verse 23, after that we find the significant request that's made after this striking testimony. Verse 23, it says, Now therefore, and this would be Abimelech and Phicol doing the talking here. He says, Now therefore, swear unto me here by God. So notice the intensification of this oath that's being taken. It's by God. That thou wilt not deal falsely with me. Kind of an unusual request after this great affirmation. It's made in verse 22. But he says this, You will not deal falsely with me nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness which I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me, and to the land wherein thou, thou hast sojourned. Abimelech realized that the presence of God was on Abraham, but he, when he states this, it has to make me wonder if this is the same man that he said, you know, Sarah is my sister, not my wife. And it would maybe that Abraham has lost a little credibility at this point because he's done this a couple times and he said these things to different individuals in Egypt and now also to Abimelech. And so it could be that even though he understands that he's God's special man, he sees this chink in the armor and he says, you know, I want to see that you truly are the kind of person that you say you are. And so he is desirous of a, of a plea for himself. Not only for himself, but he's talking about his son and his son's son. You know, Abraham, <coughs> let's make this pact, this covenant between you and I and between our sons and our grandsons, three generations, that these things are going to be true. And again, it reminds him of the kindness he showed him back in chapter 20, verse 15. And they'd been through a number of trials, but he still wants Abraham on his side. He wants Abraham's blessing. He wants Abraham to encourage his heart. He was finding something out that's very, very important. He's finding this out. I trust you understand this. I know you do. He's finding out that the friendship of good men is often an advantage even in temporal things. Goodness in a person is an advantage. Even when it comes to the temporal things of life. I remember not too long ago we were having this discussion on the national level back in the days of Bill Clinton as to whether character mattered or not. It does not, that statement does not jive with Scripture because character does matter. And it should be that we want good people with us because you can trust them and you can trust what they say. And there is something to be said about having a good person they say, yes, but he's lied to him. It seemed, though, that they've got things worked out. And you and I, we need to be sure that we are good people. God's people should be good people. We should have qualities that are defined as goodness as we make our way through this treacherous journey called life. You know, we're not deceiving or doing these issues. We are very much keeping our word as to what we should be saying and how we should be doing this. So, significant request. Abraham, let's make this pact. Let's make this treaty between myself and between my sons and your sons and your grandsons. Let's be sure that we are following these things daily. Striking testimony, significant request. Notice the sincere response. Just one verse in verse 24. Abraham said, I will swear. I will swear. 
Abraham's a man of distinct advantage, and he takes an oath that is going to require something of him. Oaths are not something we should take lightly. <coughs> we are warned about this in other places of Scripture. We're warned not to take an oath that we don't intend to keep. I heard one person, somebody one time, going on about you shouldn't take any kind of oath. Well, you know, I don't know if that's the... I think you should just keep the ones you take. Many times it's the fact that, you know, we should follow through on what we tell God. Uh, how many times have you been involved with the, the foxhole prayer? You know what I mean by that, don't you? You know, Lord, if you get me out of this desperate situation, I'm going to serve you with all of my life. Or the prayer of dedication for the baby. I can talk to you all this tonight about this because if you dedicated your baby, you probably had him here, right? But, uh, you know, um, we're going to raise this child for God's glory. We're going to have him in the place of service. We're going to do all we can to see if they're going to grow in the Lord. And then you never see him after that Sunday. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's amazing that we think there's some kind of a, a magical formula that we're somehow going to spread over top of this situation. When we take an oath, it should mean something. When you stood before the preacher and you were called man and wife, that meant something. Before God, for your witnesses. And it's not a light thing. And whenever you and I tell God something, we're going to serve Him. And I trust there's been a time in your life when you bowed your heart bowed your knee and said, Lord, whatever it is you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. No matter what it costs, no matter what the ramifications are, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you want. I'm dedicating myself to you totally and completely. It's amazing how many times we seem to take those kind of vows in a moment of, of intense dedication. And we should have those times. I'm not belittling that at all. But they only seem to last as long as the emotion of the moment. That Abraham is taking an oath, and an oath is not something that you and I should, should scoff at. It's not something that we should take lightly. Because God holds us accountable for those oaths that we tell him. And so we find that this, you know, this would be, this shows that he's not bent on pure selfishness in his own life. I'm going to follow this. I'm not going to, you know, do as long as I say, and then when the opportunity comes for me to make out against you in some monetary way, I'm going to then revoke my oath. No, when Abraham says this, he swears he's going to do this. Striking testimony, significant request, sincere response, serious rebuke in verse 25. And Abraham reproved Abimelech, because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had, notice the adverb, violently taken away. It's been quite a struggle that went on. There's a problem here. We need to get this thing ironed out. Now, we're taking this oath. We're going to work together. But we've got to clear the air. We've got to get things in a, in a way that we can... Take this oath and trust one another. And so he brings up this problem about this well of water. Boy, water would be precious in that, in that environment. You know, you're looking at some kind of a desert setting, no doubt, as these nomads are, are, are wandering through the sands and having their sheep, and they'd have to find a place to give them some water. 
you know, you think about all of this. <coughs> water would be a precious commodity for all of them. And without it, trouble. You watch the old western where the man is struggling through the desert and doesn't have any water. He finally ends up you know, putting sand in his mouth because he's so thirsty. You know, that kind of an idea would be the same thing here. I mean, if there's no water, they're going to die. And they had to have this. And Abimelech had circumvented or had disturbed these rites, and he has, and it's not so much him, he says his servants have done this, but a leader's always responsible for his servants. That's sort of the way it is. You can't pass the buck. It has to be found there. And they have violently taken away this water. So that means there must have been some kind of, I would think, from what I read here, an armed struggle that took place. So Abraham says, you know, I'd love to take this oath. I mean, that's fine. We're going to do that. But there's a problem. And we have to get it cleared up. We have to be on equal footing in this situation. Verse 26, we have a satisfactory explanation. And Abimelech said, I wot not what thou hast done this thing, neither dost thou tell, neither dost thou tell me, neither have I heard it but to this day. Abimelech says, Abraham, I'm sorry. I didn't know about this problem. It's a misunderstanding. Something has occurred. This has happened between here two individuals who we may not call them friends at this point, but at least they're going to work together. <coughs> and this needs to be cleared up. Isn't this the right way to handle things? Abimelech did not even understand the problem. And I've got to give Abraham great credit. Instead of Abraham seething about this and going and telling the next nomadic tent over, about how terrible this man has been to him, or going out there and whispering in some camel's ear, he takes it to the person who can do something about it. The person who has offended him. Praise the Lord. That is the way things should be handled. I would predict that 95% of every problems in churches and homes could be eliminated. And that's just my own wild prediction if this simple policy was followed. Because it is amazing how many times there's misunderstanding about what's been said. And if it's simply stated and heard again, it's cleared up. And this is a very biblical Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 17 principle that Jesus Christ brings to the forefront. And here we have it illustrated. Abraham handles this the proper way. He doesn't say, all right, I'm gonna, what I'll do is I'll take care of Abimelech. Whenever he gets away from here a little bit, I'm going to poison his water because of what he... No, he doesn't do any of that kind of stuff. He says, your servants and I have a problem. And we need to get this thing straight. Praise the Lord, they do. And he comes, he tells them about the problem, they talk about it. It's impossible to solve any problem without communication. All you do is just sort of fester in your own mind what you think is true. And then when we get angry, we don't hear anything, right? I don't think you hear the first thing when you're angry. And so Abraham doesn't get angry here. 
He doesn't say, ah, no. He simply listens to the problem and solves it. This is his everyday activity, as far as I'm concerned, of what I read here. You know, this is how he handles his problems. And it's a great testimony to us tonight to handle our problems in a proper way. Serious rebuke, but a satisfactory explanation. He's upset. And he even says in verse 26, Abraham, I wrought not who has done this, neither didst thou tell me. <coughs> Abraham, why didn't you tell me about this? Why did you just let it go on and on and on? Why didn't you at least have the courtesy to come here and tell me what the problem was. Again, I think this is a rebuke to Abraham, and it could have been the first time that Abraham saw him. I don't know. Maybe he could have sent some message. I mean, we, could all, we could have all kinds of if, ams, and, and buts about it. But the, he says, Abraham, I wish you would have come and just told me about this, and we could have solved it. We could have got it all cleared up. So this pagan king uses some good logic. He handles this the proper way. It should be addressed. It shouldn't just be swept under the rug. No. And if it's going to hinder their relationship to one another, it must be taken care of. Now, there's a great application for us tonight. One that's going to solve you a whole lot of anxiety and a lot of pain and a lot of false thoughts is whenever there's a problem, go tell the person. And don't assume that this is happening and that's happened. No, get it straight from, and I'm going to use the proper term, the horse's mouth. Right? Because they know what they say. And I know from my own life, there's many times I have said something and, and it tells me, and I say, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. And we can get things cleared up a whole lot easier now. So it's important for us to handle our problems on a daily basis in a biblical manner. So a satisfactory explanation. In number six, we have a solemn covenant that's made. After they get this problem solved in verses 27 down through verse 32, really the major part of this passage, they make this covenant. And this is all in light of that age or that time that they would live in. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. Abraham goes a little bit further. Abraham set seven new lambs of the flock by themselves. He selects these seven out as sort of a special sign. And now Abimelech said unto Abraham, What meanest these seven new lambs which the house set by themselves? And he said, and he said For these seven new lambs shalt thou take of thine hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Let's put some, let's put some, uh, some, some feet to this, to this covenant that we're making. And I want you to, every time when you look at these seven lambs, and I don't know where they'd be, probably close to him, I want you to remember about this well that we dug and your servants took. Let's remember this time in our lives whenever we got things taken care of. Therefore he calls the place Beersheba, because they, there they swore both of them. Thus they made a covenant of Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up, and Phico, and the chief captain of his host, and returned to the land. 
of the Philistines. Covenant was made. Beersheba means well of seven. Now there are seven sheep. Seven always is significant in scriptures. The idea of perfection is what we all would say here. But these two now are united in a solemn compact of peace. Then when that goes home. Notice there's three, there's three aspects to this, this, uh, this covenant that's made. First of all, in verse 27, you have sacrifice. You know, covenant always will have sacrifice involved. If I'm going to tell God something, usually I'm going to sacrifice something of myself to do that. And so there's sacrifice of sheep and oxen that have to happen. Then in verses 28 through 30, there's a witness to this. You know, they have the sheep and they talk about it and they tell what's going to happen. And then it ends, a covenant ends with a promise in verses 31 and 32 that they make together at this point of their life. And so we have striking testimony, significant requests, sincere response, serious rebuke, satisfactory explanation, solemn covenant, and last but not least, number seven, we have special revelation. Starting at verse 33 down through verse 34, we have sort of the capstone or the explanation point to this part. To this part. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba. Why? I think it's this morning, the idea of remembering. God wants us to remember. Remember what we've done. Remember who we are. Remember what God has done for us. So this grove would be a sign of remembrance between this covenant that was made. And called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned in the, with the Philistine in the Philistines' land many days. Abraham adds his own, <clears throat> own part of this, <clears throat> this uh, testimony. As he plants this grove, and he plants this as a testament of peace between him and God and his fellow man. It's the time whenever we've made the covenant, we've got things cleared up. It's a grand time in our lives. And he used this new name for God, I guess we could call it. He calls him the everlasting God. If you follow this in the life of Abraham, let me show you the sequence of events. <clears throat> We have moved into the fourth name now that Abraham is using for God. El Omar was the everlasting God. And then in chapter 14, we had El Elyon, God Most High, was used, verse 19 and 27. In chapter 17, verse 1, he uses El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And now he's moving into the idea of God, the everlasting God. Always something new to learn about God, isn't there? They don't have it all figured out. We don't have it all locked in. Got it. No, God is constantly working <clears throat> in our lives in different ways. And here you see this revelation progressing <clears throat> of who God is and what God is doing and how God is working in the life of this very unique servant of himself, Abraham. Everyday life. Things just going on, working, this would be a time of blessing because if we have the dates right in chapter, 20, chapter 22, we're going to find that Isaac is about 15 or 16 years of age. He's just been born in the first part of chapter 21. So here we have about 10 to 15 years where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, and it seems as if Hagar has already been dismissed from the family fold at this point, are just enjoying a time of blessing. Could you imagine what this must have been like? Here you've got this 
mentioned this yesterday in, in our men's time together. Here you got this 99, I think he was 99 at this point, 99-year-old man. All of his life he's been looking for this promised child. And that's been his goal. And Sarah, <clears throat> I think she's 10 years younger than him, if I remember my dates right. I don't have them all right here before me. She's in her 90s, or <coughs> at least upper 80s. And into the home dawdles this little boy. Little boys and little girls change homes, don't they? Every parent can tell you exactly that's true. But especially for 99 years old and 98 or 89 years old. Let me use my numbers. <clears throat> Here you've got this, this son that's been promised to them throughout all the ages, at least we know, from Abraham's life when he came from Ur of the Chaldees. God has been telling him, I'm going to give you this son of promise. And he finds himself in this home. It must have stirred the heart of Abraham as he watched him grow from childhood to adolescence is one of our own made-up names today, but grows into adulthood. Probably ought to use that terminology. You know, he grows from just this little baby to at least 15 years of age. A lot happens between 1 and 15, does it not? A lot happens. And Abraham and Sarah witnessed this, enjoyed this, they enjoyed the blessings of God in their life because when we obey God, God blesses us. It must have been a very special time for Abraham and Sarah watching Isaac mature, watching Isaac grow. And I think this sets up next Sunday night with Genesis 22, and probably one of the most difficult chapters in Scripture for us to totally comprehend. I'm not sure we can comprehend it. As to this relationship between Isaac and Abraham and Sarah. Blessed time, blessed fellowship. What a joy it would be to their heart to see God deliver His promise. Let me give you three observations in conclusion that I think sort of tie this together for us. The first one is this, and they're not on the screen for you. First thing I want you to think about with me as we close is the spiritual value of ordinary, everyday life. The spiritual value of ordinary, everyday life. Christians, you and I, do not live in a constant succession of crises and great occasions. No, they are, and praise God, they are rare. You can probably count in your life how many great occasions you've had, how many crisis times, and I could say, thank you, Lord, for not bringing more, right? I think we would all say the same thing. Most of our life, again, is normal. <clears throat> we need to remain faithful and learn the lessons that God has for us. Notice your bulletin. I don't think Anita and I talked about this, but she sure got this one right. Now, thank you, Anita. Look at Isaiah 40, 31. It's right there on the bulletin for you. If you want to look at it in the Bible, you can look at it. But this verse describes the three activities of your life that you need God's help in. Isaiah 40, 31, if you need to look it up in the Scriptures, but it's right there on the bulletin on the first of it. Look at the way it says. You probably know the verse. But look at these three experiences that God communicates with us and encourages us. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Now, that's a great promise. Now, the promise is conditional. We must wait on the Lord. 
and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. The exceptional communication with God. When I think of an eagle, and I think it's still true today, you think of a majestic bird that flies high in the sky through times of great difficulty. God takes care of us in those exceptionally exalted moments. Hasn't He been real to you? Hasn't He been good to you? When you've gone through the, the deep water, you've gone through the wings of eagles, and He has bore you along on His preciousness to take you through those times of extreme problems that come your way. Boy, I can testify to that. Second, they shall run. Daily are special emergencies that come into your life. We've all had those. That phone call you get after you've taken the test. And some of those words that doctor can use can cause extreme emergency, can it? Or that phone call you get about a child who's been in an automobile accident. You know, I don't need to go through all much of, lots of details. Or maybe that family friend that you know who's passed. We've all gone through those times, and it says that he will strengthen us as we run the days of our lives. And the last one is, and they shall walk and not faint. I think of walking as just the daily, normal activity that we go through. This is the ordinary, the normal, the average. And it's probably the hardest. Because as we've been saying throughout this entire time, when we spend our time or most of our time with God, then we're able to handle all three of these events. He will be utterly faithful to us, and we shall not fail to do His will if we wait upon the Lord. What a great charge it is for us. Spiritual value of ordinary, everyday ordinary lives. Second observation I want to make with you tonight is this. The true attitude of believers to them that are without. And I would think that Abimelech and Phico are those who are without. We are told many times to walk in view of these <coughs> non-believers who are without. Let me give you some verses. Just a reference. Colossians 4, 7, or 4, 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, 12. 1 Timothy 3, 7. We are to watch our steps as the world is observing us. Because here is a man who says, The Lord is with thee in what thou do. So we have responsibilities tonight to watch our steps before the unsaved world as they watch us. And third, the unspeakable blessedness of new experiences of God. Aren't those just phenomenal in your life? It's a great satisfaction is realized when a believer discovers more and more the glories of God and His grace. Think about your life have you, as you have discovered more about God's glories and, and the grace that God gives to you on on just the, the activities that you're going through. And when that happens, there's this great satisfaction that comes into our heart to know that He loves us and He cares for us. Those new experiences, they're not for our personal satisfaction. 
but they are to prepare our souls for greater accomplishments. Notice what God is preparing Abraham for. Take thy son, thine only son Isaac, and take him on top of Mount Moriah and kill him. I don't think there's a person in this room who's going to say, boy, Lord, I'm looking forward to this event. No. But this revelation of God in his life is preparing him for that moment when God puts him to the supreme test. Is God not doing that to you? I trust he is. Bringing into your life and your heart experiences of his glory and his grace to prepare you for some Areas that he has ahead of you. And I trust you view all of your experiences in that way. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make errors. And he hasn't, you know, he's not super hard on you. He knows what you can handle. First Thessalonians or First Corinthians 10, 13. Harold quoted for us Saturday morning. He knows us. And so they're not just for our personal enjoyment. They are preparing us for greater service. And the more God reveals himself to us, the, more of, the better equipped we are for the next job that God has. Next, for Abraham, most severe test of his life. Does God own him? Does God own it all? Or is he holding anything back from allowing God to work? That's a question you need to think about also. Does God own you? Is there anything you're holding back tonight from God? Father, <clears throat> I thank you.